As many of you know, this past week we uh, spent a few days in, uh, out in Washington and, and we went out there uh, primarily, uh, well, originally exclusively, uh, to spend a few days with Austin and my uh, walker. Uh, and we arrived there uh, on Monday, but, but a few days before that, uh, I was asked by the elders if there was a way to stay, for me to stay an extra day uh, in order to minister at the funeral of a 14-month-old a little baby girl named Lydia Hatch, and I had agreed uh, to do that. And so because they'd asked me to do that, and they'd asked me to speak from a particular uh, passage of scripture, uh, that passage was on my mind. Some of you, you know what it's like, uh, well, for, for me and my work, because my work is ministry, uh, there is always the pressure of what you're going to be preaching. And so you're out and about and you're enjoying things, but you're thinking, I need to preach Ecclesiastes 7. And then I got to get on a plane and come here and I need to preach on Hebrews chapter 6. And, and so everything I did was through the lens uh, of those ministries. Uh, and in the providence of God, uh, my, our, our flight was messed up in so many amazing ways uh, in trying to get here. At one point, we were about to land in Louisville. It's 8.30. I can get home, take a shower. I can preach. I can get there. I have, you know, you're up all night, whatever. I, but I can come there and I can do it. And then they say there's storms in Louisville. So we get diverted uh, to, uh, to Atlanta. And I'm trying to tech. I'm like, I'm hoping there's a little bar. I can tech. John, you've got to preach this morning. Because I thought, no, I'm good. I'm good. And then, and then we got there and I realized, well, it's not gonna, that's not going to happen. Uh, and because of the nature of that ministry in Hebrews 6, and because there are a number, a number of people who are there in, here in the morning who are not here uh, in the evening, uh, as I prayed on the plane and sought the Lord about what to bring, uh, I'm going to go to the text in Ecclesiastes 7, but I'm, I'm going to deal with a passage that I did not deal with uh, last or this, uh, yesterday. Uh, trying to remember my days, uh, but uh, one particular uh, phrase that I want us to be considering here. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, let's turn to the book of Ecclesiastes in chapter 7. Verse 1 says, and I'll read the first four verses, but we're going to really focus on verse 1. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of one's birth. Let's pray. Our Father, we do pray that you would aid us and help us uh, tonight in looking into your word and profiting uh, from it. We ask, living God, that you would, by the Spirit, do good to every soul here, and especially, Lord, we pray for those who at this hour do not know you. Lord, may you, by your conquering power, you who are more powerful, as we read, than any of the nations and any of the gods, may you overcome resistant hearts and bring those sweetly to know and love the Savior, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, if you are of a certain age, uh, you will well remember the coming of January 1st, 2000. Some of you are laughing, some of you aren't, because you do not remember the months and months of fear that came upon so many in our nations, 
And I'm not going to ask you how many of you stocked up on things. But there was a fear of what was called the Y2K bug. So you thought you'd never had to hear about Y2K again, did you? But if you were alive and uh, aware of what was going on, and, and kids, very quickly, the idea was that uh, computers, the thought was that computers that had been programmed to type in 1980, 1990, 1990, had not been like, oh, I never thought they'd reach 2000. And the thoughts, what's going to happen when all those internal clocks flip over? And the, and the fear was all the computers are going to shut down. All the electricity is going to be gone, and all, all the cars are going to stop working, and, you know, dogs and cats would marry, and all, all kinds of horrible things would happen. It would wipe everything out, and America would go back to the Stone Age. So I'm not going to were you afraid? Some of, I know some here were, were a little more, maybe more than a little concerned. So it was therefore with great interest that some of us watched the dawning of the new year and the new century with celebrations in other parts of the world. Because Australia, you know, was all these hours ahead of us and the thought, well, they got computers too. And if the lights stay on there, when the clocks flip over, then we're probably going to be okay. So I remember watching Australia. It was the first major country, and you could see the clocks turn over essentially without any incident. Now, if you happen to watch on that day, as the, as the clock struck midnight, the harbor in Sydney is one of the great sites there in Australia. And it was lit up with fireworks, and there is in the harbor this massive bridge and when midnight came on, these lights came on the bridge, and a word was written across that bridge. And that word, written in a very distinct script that virtually everyone in the city, in the city of Sydney knew, was the word eternity. Now that word in an amazing way, in a way that I can't fathom how it even happened, was a tribute to one of the most unique, I'm going to call him an evangelist, that I've ever read about. A man named Arthur Stace is described in a brief online biography in this way, an illiterate former soldier, petty criminal, and alcoholic who became a devout Christian. And Arthur wanted to win Sydney for Jesus. And though he was essentially illiterate, he had beautiful handwriting. And the one word that he certainly knew and that he began to write everywhere throughout Sydney was the word eternity. He'd write it in chalk. Now, we'll, we'll, we'll get away whether he was a vandal or not and all that kind of stuff. I'm just, I'm just telling you what happened. But he wrote that word on sidewalks and on the sides of buildings, and the people of Sydney began to see it everywhere. Eternity. Eternity. If you looked down, eternity. If you looked up, eternity. For years until he was finally discovered uh, who it was. And he had a burden and he had a desire 
that the people of his city would contemplate the reality that this life is not all that there is. As we are told in Proverbs 23 and verse 17, be zealous for the fear of the Lord all the day, for surely there is a hereafter, and your hope will not be cut off. Now, as I said this past week, I was meditating upon this chapter, and I think I I said I was going to read the rest of it. I'm just going to go let you have mercy on me because I haven't slept much in uh, 30 hours or, or whatever. But this passage we're really focusing on, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. For that is the end of all men, and the living will take it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by a sad countenance the heart is made better. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. What a striking thing is said here in this particular passage of scripture. It's a passage, again, that I spent some time meditating on in light of the uh, the little one uh, who died and and this favor from the family. uh, Would I come and would I preach these particular words uh, to the Lord's people? And so here, as we look at this particular passage of scripture, you find here... Uh, a series of of paradoxes, uh, of seemingly great contradictory terms that are set forth. Now, this is a passage of scripture that we've looked at several times uh, in the past and particularly focusing on this element of the house of mourning over the house of mirth or the house of laughter. But I want to focus, as I said, a bit more on this first seemingly great contradiction That is, that the day of one's birth or the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. So I have a little title for this sermon, Your Funeral is Better Than Your Birthday. Your funeral is better than your birthday. Now, who thinks in that particular way? Now, this is prefaced by a statement about the worth of your name, that a good name is better than precious ointment. Now, that may seem strange to us as Christians. Maybe it sounds strange that you should even be or proud uh, that you should even worry about your name, worry about your reputation, worry about what others think about you. And yet this is a sentiment that is repeated several times uh, in the word of God. Uh, Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 1, a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, loving favor rather than silver or gold. And we read that and we say, well, is that right? Aren't we to die to our reputation? What if somebody uh, wants to defame us or speak evil of us? Are we not to rejoice in such things? Doesn't the Bible teach us that if we are persecuted for the sake of righteousness and if men speak evil of us for the sake of Christ, that there is blessing there? Well, that's not really what is being addressed in this situation. What's being addressed in this situation is living in such a way and dying in such a way that you leave a precious legacy behind. And the idea is that when your days are over and your life is reviewed, uh, the funeral I did yesterday was for a 14-month-old girl who had severe disabilities. Uh, she, 
She never spoke. She never walked. The the things that you, the little earmarks that parents look for in a a child, uh, none of those things were there. She was sustained with a a trachea tube and and a feeding tube, and yet she was precious and, and she was loved. But the legacy that she lives, that she leaves, is that of being a, a, a precious image bearer of God, loved in spite of those circumstances. There was not, she did this, and she said this, and she led this kind of a life like you often have at a funeral. In fact, somebody as well said that there are more lies told at funerals than at any other time. Where the temptation is to stand up and to say something nice about somebody. Well, sometimes you got to say, well, listen, you all know the person who died and not a whole, you know, I'm not going to stand up here and say something that I ought not to say. And so we get here this issue of better. A good name is better than precious ointment in the day of death. The idea here is better than the day of of one's birth. We ask the question, how is it better to die than to be born? I guess it really is a paradox, isn't it? We have some expectant moms here. And by the way, I, I should have mentioned this here. If you have, as you think of it, pray for my, my daughter, Olivia, who uh, was experiencing some early contractions and has gone to the hospital to uh, ensure that everything is uh, okay. Uh, so that's another thing on my heart and on my mind. But can you imagine saying to a new mom when they hold the baby, I come maybe and I, I hold the baby for the first time and you say, boy, you think this is a great day? Wait till they die. Wait till 80 years, again, hopefully 80, 90. Well, that's shocking language. But Solomon wants us to think about this. He wants us to think about death and the grave and who and what we will be at the end of our life. And this does tie in with what we are looking at in Hebrews chapter 6. It's not how you begin the race. It's not where you were. It's where you will end up. So there is great excitement when life begins, like there is at the beginning of a race. The gun sounds uh, at the, as the race uh, begins and the crowd roars and the runners leave their mark. And then the excitement, as it were, fades away until the final lap. And in the race now, you begin to ask the question, well, who's going to win? Who's going to finish well? Who will cross the line and in what order will they cross it? And so the beginning of life is a time of joy, and the end of life is almost always a time of sorrow. It's the sorrow of loss for those who loved the one who has gone before. But for that one, there is something about the finishing of that race. There's something about the tying up of life. There's something of the end that is more glorious and better than the beginning. Nobody gives a prize to somebody who starts a race. They give it to those who finish. The glory comes not at the beginning of the season, but at the end of the season. 
And it is in the reality and the complex of death and dying and the evaluation of life and the contemplation of where that person who has died is. And I've said this before and I want to say it again. Dear people of God, live in such a way that if I have to preach your funeral, it's easy for me. Okay? I want to live in such a way that whoever does my funeral doesn't have to mourn and contemplate what the last years or months or days of my life or what the end of my life revealed about who I really was. It is in sorrow, we read in this passage, that the heart is made better. It is in contemplation of the reality of the end of all things that the countenance and the heart is improved because honestly these are things that nobody wants to contemplate and again I, I, I'm not trying to be glib here but when the notice went out about the the funeral and the family put this out on Facebook hey everybody's invited to the funeral nobody's thinking I want to be there other than they want to show love to the family But there's an awkwardness and a sadness and a sorrow and a particularly crushing weight that comes at the funeral of a little one. And the smaller the casket, very often the greater the grief. And to to preach and to look at the father and mother and to have them responding to what you're saying as waves of sorrow come in. Hey, who wants to be there? Wouldn't you rather go to a party? And there was a whole group of people that were all planning a big party Saturday. And maybe they went on and did it afterward. But I'm sure the thought would have been, it's far better to go. Isn't it far better to go where there's fun and laughter? But the reality is that the heart and the soul is made better in the contemplation of these realities. Because this is, as this text tells us, look gang, it's where we're all going. If I stood up here and said, hey, we're going to take a trip to Madagascar, some of you wouldn't care. I don't care if I ever go there. But if I say, I want to talk to you about the end of your life, listen, you're going there. Unless Jesus returns, you're going there, and you don't know when. And so we need to be prepared. Truths we may want to put off, not deal with. For some here, perhaps, questions you you don't like to wrestle with. Do I have a soul? Is there a God? Is there a heaven and a hell? Is there a day of judgment? And what is the standard of judgments? What questions will God ask of me? These are not the questions we ask on the day of one's birth. Great. Is it a boy or girl? How big are they? Does he look like his father or mother? What do you hope they're going to be? You're not asking the big questions of life. You're caught up with the joyful minutia of the future. But there are questions that we call funeral questions. And if we were not mortal and, and, and if we did not have the reality coming up that, that, hey, one day this is all going to be over, these are things that we as creatures try to avoid. In fact, the book of Hebrews talks about those who were, through fear of death, uh, subject to bondage all their life. And that's humanity apart from the gospel. 
Why do people live the way that they do? Because they know the clock is ticking. And I have only so much time to enjoy and so much time to live and so much time to experience before the end comes. And every once in a while, somebody needs to come, as it were, like Arthur stays and write the word eternity. So here's a man who says that the end is better than the beginning. In what way? How is it? Well, again, the day of one's birth is full of potential. It's all unwritten. Will they be righteous or wicked? Wise or foolish? A lover of eternal truth or an indulger of the flesh? Who knows? But at the end of life, all is written. And the truth of who and what we are will have been done. I used an illustration some years ago, and I, kind of, I hesitate to use it because the very man who gave this illustration is a man who ruined his reputation. I will make it vague. I read some years ago a book by a pastor. And I did not, I've never met this pastor, but he was a friend of a good friend of mine. And this pastor who wrote the book was, uh, his birth father had deserted him and his mother eventually married a godly man who was a doctor. And some years ago now, that adoptive father, that doctor, was killed in a car accident. And the pastor, as he's writing this book, speaks about going through his father's possessions and finding a filing cabinet that he'd never seen before. Behind a door that was locked. And there was a great fear when he found the key. Is what I'm about to find as I open that cabinet, will it reveal some hidden truth which will radically alter the reputation of my father? Some remnants of a secret life. Pornography, whatever the case might be. And what a blessing it was to open it up and find it was full of old medical records. There was no box that contradicted what the man appeared to be. At the end of the day, he was what his son thought he was. But friends, is there anything in your box? Is there anything that you're afraid that when you're gone, something you didn't erase, something you didn't close out, that someone will find. And so it is at the end of life, because at the end of life, you look at and you say to yourself, well, this is who they were. They fought the race, or they, or they ran the race, and they fought the fight, and they came to the end, and they finished. And that's the goal. And so again, it's better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting, for that is the end of all. God has written days in his book for us, days appointed for us. 
And the question is, at the end of our life, as our life closes out, are we going to be what we appeared to be? And there is a sad reality in the scriptures because the Lord says of certain men that it would be better for them that they had never been born. And the sad reality that sometimes it would be better for certain men had they died earlier. Now, I was spiritually nurtured among the kind of men who prayed often, Lord, let me die before I would do something that would destroy my testimony or your work in my life. I would rather be dead. And I can remember some years ago when I was first struck with uh, my uh, Bell's palsy uh, that the thought came to me that uh, when I uh, was contemplating that I might not be able to preach anymore and that God may have sovereignly just said to me, you're done. 30 years and you're done. And I have to confess to you that there was a certain joy in that. Because I thought, well, I've made it. I have lived and loved and labored without scandal. And if it should end now, well, that would be my life. And the reality that God has now given five more years or whatever it is since then, and that there may be 20 more years is both a joy and at times a cause of introspection and prayer for the guarding of my life. We need to consider these realities, dear ones. As we think about, are there things in our life right now that were they discovered? Are there things about yourself that if the brethren knew. And I want to say something to the children here. Because I don't know all that goes on in every home. It's very possible. Well, I'm not going to say it's, it's, it's not only very possible. It has happened here. That there are families who have a veneer of godliness. But the home is full of dead men's bones and uncleanness. And my concern is, my, my concern has been that some of you kids might think that we're all like that. That we all just put on when we come to God's house. And that nobody here is the genuine thing. Moms and dads, your kids are watching your life and your reputation. They hear your profession of faith. They hear of the greatness of the God that you serve and the grace of that God and the love of that God and the mercy of that God and the patience of that God and the purity of that God and the effusive love of that God. And if those elements are missing from your home, that is the gospel is missing from your home if it's on your lips but not in your life. Don't be surprised when the day comes and you hope that people will celebrate your life as they did your birthday. That when the truth is revealed about who and what we really are. Now bless God there's time to repent. There's time to express sorrow. There's time to say to husband, wife, son and daughter. Forgive me 
for that hypocrisy. Somebody has said fathers ought to be the chief repenters because likely we're the chief sinners in our home. We bear a disproportionate weight of responsibility. And so it is that the day of one's death can be better than the day of one's birth. And so what do we do with such things? Well, again, what we do is we contemplate what it is to have a heart of wisdom. We contemplate what it is to live in the light of eternity. We contemplate what it is to live with the reality that life will one day be over and that who and what we are will be made known. And so to finish your course, to run your race, to finish not with perfection, none of us are going to finish with perfection, but to have those who knew you well say, my dad, my grandpa, my husband, my wife, my mom, my sister, they were what they appeared to be. Well, may it be that the contemplation of eternity will lead to the heart being made wise. But how is the heart, how does the beginning, how, how does that begin? The reality is that very few of us would have come to Jesus simply because he is immeasurably beautiful. We came to him because he's a savior. We came to him because he died on the cross. We came to him because he did in his life and in his death what we could never do. That is win and earn a righteousness for us before God that he would give freely. Now that was part of my sermon that I had hoped to preach this morning. Because part of what apostasy is, is it turns the death of Jesus into something common. See, when you turn away from Jesus and you say, well, he's not the son of God and he did not do on the cross what the Bible says, it makes his death the death of a common criminal. But that's not what his death was. And that's not who he was. And were he not a savior, and were it not a reality that we would die, and were it not a reality that we would stand before God and give an account for our life, and were it not for the reality that your life, your inner and your outward life, your words will be rehearsed in the courtroom of heaven in the sight of a holy God. And when God reads his law, as it were in your case, what are the charges? Were there other gods before me? Did you take my name in vain? What did you do on my Sabbath day? Did you know me and love me and worship me and honor me? What was your life like with your parents and those in authority? What was your life like in regard to your love or hatred, your anger and bitterness toward others? What of your lusts? Guys and girls, men and women, what of the tens of thousands of times you've sinned against God? And we're not for that reality. See, I, I could, I'd like to run away from that. I'd like to say, no, 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 that day, that day will never come. 
I don't want to think about it. I'll put in the earbuds. I'll, I'll fill my life with frivolity and vanity and with vain friends who will never talk to me about my soul and the contemplation of the end and the reality that I will die. And again, dear friends, I think I can now say, I think most of the, most of the funerals that I have done have been for those under 20. And that children and teens will stand and give an account for their life. And that is where the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And wisdom begins to come in. And the idea that I need a savior, I need somebody who will take away my sin, I need somebody who will give me their righteousness come. I need, I need him to have come and I need to go to him and I need to go to him now. And if you do that, your death, so your birth brought you into a cursed world full of sin. Your death will issue you into a place of eternal life where the Savior is and there is no sin. And so the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. May that knowledge drive you to the Savior. Well, let's pray and let's ask his blessing on these things. Our Father in heaven, we do pray that you would have mercy upon us, that you would, Lord, forgive us for those things that may, as it were, be in some box in our life. Lord, something about us that we don't want discovered, something that would call into question your work in our lives. Our Father, we thank you that there is a place where such boxes are emptied and such hearts are cleansed. We thank you, Father, that there is a place where repentance is renewed. We thank you, Father, that there is a fountain that is open because we sin. We thank you that there is a Savior who has come and lived and died and triumphed over the grave. And Lord, we pray that the contemplation of eternity... May it be written, as it were, on our walls and on our sidewalks, written on our steering wheels and on our mirrors, written on our computer screens. Lord, eternity, write it on our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.